It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This particular Daily Thunder message was a deeply meaningful one for me. It was also extremely unusual. First off, it was delivered at night, and it wasn't the typical Daily Thunder crowd sitting in the audience. It was the opening night banquet for our Pastor Leaders Summit, and the atmosphere was marked by a heightened reverence. Hey, this is Eric. In my preparations for this particular delivery, I chose to bring these leaders into my journey through World War II. I'm glad you all get the chance to share in this message. I hope it blesses you to hear it as much as it blessed me to deliver it. This is sort of fun for any of you that are following the, uh, my World War II series, is I will stick in a World War II message whenever I can. And so who would have ever guessed that a banquet night would get a World War II message? And especially episode uh, 65. <laughs> and I'm not trying to sell you on the first 64. This, is, this, is, this can stand alone. It is uh, the significance even of the time, and I've seen this all throughout this series that I've been going through. It's highly irregular. I know that. I'm not trying to impress anyone by going through World War II. If anything, a whole bunch of pastors, I'm doing the exact opposite. It's like, well, how does this fit into the normal practice of preaching the word? One of the things that I'm very sensitized to right now is our lack of understanding what has happened before us. And we are extremely vulnerable to repeating. And so to recall and to rehearse what has happened, both scripturally and just historically, becomes very, very important for a time like this. And so as I've been going through World War II, I know it sounds like a strange thing to be studying in a time like this. However, if you listen to the first, what, 64, what am I, 64 before this, you would realize with awe and wonder the parallel that is existing between 19, the 1930s and right now, when there is an appeasement going on with sin. And you have Nazi Germany and Hitler making their move upon Europe. And Hitler is promising all sorts of things. He's telling everyone that it's in, with good intentions. He's trying to just strengthen his own nation. And this nation has been under the heavy hand of the Versailles Treaty. And so as a result, everyone's bleeding heart is going out to, to Hitler. And everyone is falling for it. Darkness is making its move. The Germans were limited to a 100,000 man standing army. They are going to openly defy the Treaty of Versailles and start to build millions of armed soldiers. And then they're going to move them into the Rhineland, which it is strictly forbidden because that makes Belgium, Holland, and France vulnerable. And that is a very critical area strategically. So you are not allowed, Germany, to have troops there. They move troops there. All of Hitler's generals are like, you can't do that. They're going to retaliate. They won't retaliate. They want peace. And he was right. All the allied countries do not do a thing. They do not lift a finger. They want peace. Peace, peace at all costs. They do not want an engagement with the enemy. And so he takes Austria. They do nothing. He takes Sudetenland. They do nothing. He takes Czechoslovakia. They complain, but they do nothing. World War II will not start until Hitler invades Poland. But that's way into this whole drama. Way past the point when reasonable men should have stood up to this growing darkness. Right now, I don't know where we're at in that story. If, we were, if you said, Eric, are we at Poland or are we at you know, them taking the Rhineland or just creating a bigger army? Where are we at? I have no idea. And I don't really want to speculate. I'm not that brilliant. But what I can see is a parallel. And I can see that we are so vulnerable to 1939 Great Britain. Where we, if you were to say anything about standing up against Hitler, you were called a warmonger. You were called a hate monger. Isn't that just interesting? Because now we look back in 1940, uh, that went away real quick. Because they finally came to the conclusion, Neville Chamberlain himself, who was the prime minister, who was you know, the one pacifying and appeasing the whole time, came to the conclusion. We've been lied to, we've been duped, we must do something now for the sake of the free world. And you know, he'll be removed and Winston Churchill will step onto the scene. But this is going to start a drama. 
that is going to build because France is going to fall. One of the most powerful nations in world history is going to fall like a house of cards to this Nazi regime. And one country will be left standing. One country that is standing against Hitler, and that's Great Britain. And they're going to stand alone until Pearl Harbor. Uh, Winston Churchill is going to praise God on December 7th, 1941, when Japan makes the ultimate blunder and brings America into the war. But Japan didn't believe America would fight either. America didn't want to fight. We're in the middle of the Great Depression at this time. We had our own issues. We were self-focused. When you study this time period, what you see is a parallel. You see a whole bunch of people, not that dissimilar to us, that really don't want to engage in bigger issues. Because we have our own issues. If you're in the middle of a Great Depression, could you understand why you wouldn't want to go across the Atlantic Ocean to fight this thing that's a European war? Excuse me, but we don't want to have anything to do with this. You fight it yourself. Great Britain's on their own. And so this is going to create a huge tension in all world affairs. Once America enters in, you're going to see an allied force begin to form. And that allied force is going to build up a strategy for years Their goal is to cross the English Channel and attack on the beaches of France. We know it as D-Day. And so in the historical flow, the chronology of where I'm at, I'm basically right at D-Day, right as you guys are showing up in Windsor. And so I feel a, to me, maybe it's just the language of my soul, but I feel like this readiness, that's a breakthrough. D-Day, for many of us, we're just going to see the loss of lives in the the blood uh, that is just disgusting and terrible, right? But we need to also remember that there is going to be a breakthrough in that time, and the the allies are going to pierce into Europe in a way that had not been done ever since, I mean, all the way back in the 30s when Hitler's starting to make his move. This is the first major movement that is going to pierce Hitler's armor. And so as a result, it's a significant advance. So I like it. I like bringing up things like D-Day right about now because we could use a movement in an advance to break through what was called the Atlantic Wall. That's what I crave right now. And so what you're going to see, I'm going to lay out a message for you, probably unlike any other message you've ever heard. If you haven't heard any of the World War II series, you're like, is this legal? Can you, can you teach the Word of God this way? <laughs> Uh, You can arrest me afterwards, but you'll probably enjoy it the whole time. It is very delightful to see the scriptures even animate and to to actually go into an action mode, and it's it's really powerful. So I'm calling this being presidential. This is a term that we use at Ellerslie, and if you've gone through Ellerslie, you may have heard me reference this, but it's more of a leadership term that I will use within, like Leslie and I will reference this a lot. And there is a position that I have. And with that position come certain responsibilities. And with that position come certain decision-making requirements. And with that position comes weights that at times I really wish I didn't have. And I want to look for someone near me and see if I can stick it on their shoulders. Because I don't want to have to make that decision. What I'm going to define as being presidential is making a decision because God has anointed you to be in that position, you must lead and you must lead now. There is a responsibility, and this is one of the number one things God has baked into my life over the past, whatever it's been now, 12 years. But I can remember a moment when this became firmed up, whereas it was, it was the wet clay and then it went into a kiln. And something firmed up in my soul. I was in Orlando, Florida, uh, I was on my way to Haiti, and Haiti had just been, been hit with a hurricane, and so we were in a, a very difficult situation because our students in the first semester elders were actually going to go to Haiti uh, as their extension, like an advanced training, and the very place that we were going to go was now filled with refugees, and so we were in sort of a crisis situation trying to solve these problems. And back home here, when we had another issue on the leadership side, where there was uh, someone in our organization that uh, was somehow turned unhealthy. I don't know how else to say it in a very quick summation, but there was a downturn uh, in behavior, and there was a serious, it was a very challenging situation, very strong personality, uh, and that I knew needed to be addressed. 
and I knew he needed to take a step back. And to be honest, I was sort of wishing someone else would show up and say, hey, I was thinking of talking to so-and-so for you. <laughs> and that person just didn't come, no matter how hard I prayed. God, you know, could... And it was, it was fun because this person was significantly older than me and had a very strong reputation uh, throughout even the world uh, as a strong leader uh, for Christ. And I, I was in a, almost a paralysis and I remember praying with Leslie and talking with Leslie, and I still remember the moment. I mean, it's a defining moment in my life where I was sitting on a couch and I stood up. I have a lot of moments where I'm on a couch and I stand up, actually, if you, if you hear my story. Because standing up to me is a symbol, I, I think in my soul, of saying, I'm not gonna sit on this, I'm gonna act. And I stood up and it was like, give me the phone. And I made possibly the hardest call in my life, even still to this day, possibly one of the hardest conversations I've ever engaged in, and I had to steal myself as a leader and say, God has anointed me, he's put me in this position, it's my responsibility, now is the time. And I moved forward, and Leslie and I have always referred to that as being presidential. Eric, I think you need to be presidential right now, is what she'll say. It's like, I know exactly what that means. <laughs> Why do I have to be the president of this organization? <laughs> it looks really good on the business card, it really stinks in life. King David is going to say to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. I tell you what, that's a really good scripture for right about now that all, I think all of us could adopt as our key scripture for life right now. So if any of you have ever heard me teach on be strong and of good courage out of the Hebrew, it's, it's profound. And if you get the, the Greek uh, link with it in the, in the Septuagint, you're going to see it said in one Greek word in the New Testament, and that is endrizomai, which is going to translate basically as quitchy like men, or it's going to be be manful. What we have is a statement, father to son, be a man. You know what to do, Solomon. Listen to this. Do it. So in the same scripture, be strong and of good courage. I just lifted this out. I wanted to make it big because it's an unusual phrase, I think, for us to think comes out of scripture. Do it. I mean, that's a Nike type of commercial, but <laughs> do it. You know what to do. Stand up off the couch, pick up the phone, and make the call. It's your job. You've been put in that position. Do it. We want someone else to do it. That's the weird thing. And so what I'm wanting to do is rally us afresh to the fact that we may not want to be the leaders right now. Esther, I'm sure, was not happy that she got chosen as queen for this exact situation. It's like, why did, I thought that was such a good deal to get chosen as queen. But right now, it's not looking so hot. Right now, you prayed for this position that you're in. God has raised you up for such a time as this. Be strong and of good courage. Do it. One of the phrases I've oftentimes used, you even saw it sort of in the communication on the, on, uh, on the page for this event, is this. And I, growing 10 feet taller in the crisis. And, you know, I've never been in the military, but from, from what I understand is that you can have someone that looks really good on paper academically and a guy who might not be as well uh, educated, but you put them both in a battle situation and one shrinks and one can grow 10 feet taller. And so as a result, this is the same thing with leaders. Leaders, you can have well-educated men that have their I's dotted and T's crossed, but technically what we need right now are men that, and women that live it that are willing to actually do what Scripture says instead of know what Scripture says. It helps to know, don't get me wrong, but it really helps to do. I'd rather have someone who knows less but does it than someone who knows a lot and doesn't. And so right now, we could really use those that are ready to do what Scriptures say and grow 10 feet taller in this crisis. Archibald Primrose, the Earl of Rosebery, isn't that quite the name, uh, this is going to be a celebration 300 years after William Wallace, and they are going to, at Sterling 
Castle actually celebrate the life of William Wallace. And so I have to tell you that this is about William Wallace, but the quote itself is for all of us in here. And I know I have a tendency to reference manhood more freely than I do womanhood, so I just want to ask all the women in here to forgive me up front that I am decidedly manly in my bearing, which is probably good. I mean, even the women have to acknowledge it's probably good uh, (laughs) that I am. But I want all the women to participate in this without blushing, okay? Just like Andrizomai, the statement that Paul's gonna make to the church at Corinth, he's speaking to the church, and he says, be manful. And then he says, you're the bride, be manful. (laughs) So, uh, so listen to this. This is, this is for all of us here. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. I don't know about you, but there's, I almost feel like I'm growing 10 feet just even in hearing the quote. I want, as you do, to match such a quote. I want these things to live in me and actually function, animate, and not just be on a page or on a screen in this case. So let's go through scripture uh, and history because I have things out of that aren't in scripture that are just in history here. I even got one from the Apocrypha in here. I'm sorry, guys. I wasn't, like, I wasn't trying to make a, a theological statement there. David at the camp in Elah. So David is a man that strides onto the stage of time at the perfect moment. He's built for this occasion. And he says, is there not a cause? And he's gonna take down the giant. This is what Israel needs. Israel is needed. What is wanted is a man in this exact situation. And Drizomai, where's the manfulness right now? Who's gonna rise up? And David strides into camp delivering bread and cheese. He's the man for the moment, the man for the occasion. Moses at the sea's edge. Boy, talk about a trial. Talk about a test. You have an entire nation who's used to being slaves, who trembles before the Egyptians, and now their leader has led them to a dead end. Mountains on both sides, a sea at their back, and the most powerful military force in the world coming at them, and they're mad, and they want their slaves back. And the Israelites, according to Josephus, the historian, he's saying that they're telling Moses that they need to give up and and return to their enslavement. That's the only way they can negotiate their way out of this. And Moses, if there is ever a time in history where a man was needed, whoa, right now, and he rises up as a man of faith, and, I mean, one of my favorite quotes actually comes from Josephus' account. Again, this is verbal history of the Jews, but it's, it's really cool. It is no better than madness to despair in the providence of God now. If God has led us here, we can trust that he can take us out of here. And this is literally what he says. He prays in front of his nation. And he says, if God wants to, he can actually make a way through these mountains for us. He could actually part this sea and we could walk across on dry land or he could pick us up and we could all fly out of here. A man for the moment. You see, your church or your organization, wherever you're at, may be facing a crisis right now. They don't need someone who picks up stones to throw at the scriptures right now. What they need is the man for the moment. You could put woman in there too, for the moment, that's willing to stand up and say, guys, we're believers The church of Jesus Christ all throughout history has dealt with these things. What do you think the great cloud is cheering us towards? To give up? Because we're facing some difficulty for maybe the first time in American church history? Come on! This is what historic Christianity delights in. This is the proving ground. This is the crucible. This is what separates the wheat from the chaff. This is what proves who has oil in their lamp. Phineas at the mocking moment. Oh, what a great moment when literally they're defined right in front of Moses, goes into the tent, and he's literally profaning Israel. And Phineas rises up with his javelin, the man for the moment. Mattathias at the profaned altar. It's a story out of, like I said, the Apocrypha, the Maccabees. Great story, though. I mean, it's a, it's a good story. I'm not going to call it inspired scripture. But wow, it's a good story. 
The Hellenists uh, are, are trying to profane the altar, so they want Mattathias, who's the priest, to actually sacrifice a pig on the altar. He will not do it. So another guy comes up who realizes he'd like to have favor with the government, so he goes, goes up to sacrifice a pig on Jehovah's altar. So Mattathias goes up and kills him, <laughs> which starts quite a series of events, and it is quite the story. But whoa, the man for the moment, he's like, Israel, follow me. And I mean, what you have is grand drama, the man for the moment. Wallace at Roslin, that's William Wallace, uh, one, of, one of my favorite stories, I love rehearsing it, is Wallace has been betrayed by his own countrymen. And his, the nobles want to pander for peace with Edward. And Wallace will not do it. And so basically they give over Wallace, right? I mean, treachery! And yet he is going to escape and he's going to find his way to France, but he cannot live with himself in any type of peace and comfort knowing that his homeland is under siege and that its elders and its nobles have betrayed the people. So he is going to, in disguise, get this, in disguise as a French uh, knight, is going to make his way back to Scotland to fight alongside the Scots, but getting no credit for it. Could you imagine doing that? If he is exposed for who he is, he's a dead man. They will capture him, take him, and behead him, or draw and quarter him, technically. And I mean, he has no hope, but he cannot live in peace. He must fight for his homeland. So he comes to Scotland fighting as, what was his name, Sandy? Do you remember what his name was? Sir, I can't remember. De Longville? Yeah, Sir De Longville. Oh, Sir Guy De Longville. Yeah, what a great name. If you could pick a name, is that the one you're going to pick? <laughs> Call me Guy. Uh, <laughs> Don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah. So the battle turns bad, and all the Scots are running for their life. It's a key critical defining battle in all of this history of Scotland, England. And Wallace recognizes that they're losing. And he, as, as Sir Guy de Longville, what, what can he say? Hey guys, let's keep fighting. Who are you? You know, he has no power, no persuasion. And he recognizes he needs to give up his life to be able to turn the tide of this. So he goes to the top of a, a rocky promontory, whips off his helmet. Of course, in the story, he has this long flowing blonde hair, which is sort of awkward. <laughs> Men of Scotland! And they're all, they look up at him like, Wallace! And the battle turns and they are infused with a fresh fight. What is needed is a man. What is needed in this moment is someone who will stand up 10 feet taller and live out the Christ pattern of saying, take me. Take me. Yes, I'm willing to lay down my life that others could live. Churchill in the darkest hour. It, it is. It's a dark hour, guys. When you study world history and you get to May 13th, 1940, I cannot think of a more, and I've spent a lot of time studying that very day of what was going on. I cannot think of a worse day to be given the prime minister position of Great Britain. And this man steps into that position almost with glee, knowing that he was built for this. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story, and he grows 10 feet taller, guys. And, I mean, by the way, have I ever mentioned that my middle name is Winston? <laughs> the crisis. So we're going to, I'm going to build to a crisis, and I'm go, we're going to watch a man work through a crisis. June 6, 1944, 4 a.m. So if you know when D-Day occurred, it's June 6, 1944. Uh, just a few hours after this, you're going to have uh, the beaches of Normandy start being struck by real live uh, soldiers. But we have a crisis, and I'll explain it. So Alan, General Alan Brooke was actually the original guy that was going to lead D-Day. And I, I'm guessing many of you know that it ended up being Dwight uh, D. Eisenhower. Uh, oh, yeah, D, yeah, yeah Dwight, Dwight wants us all to remember that his first name is Dwight. How come it has to be my middle name? Could you imagine if my first name was Winston? <laughs> so excerpted from his journals, what you see is you see a lot of the other generals that are very concerned. Of course, he's, he was the original general picked to, to fulfill this and to, to play this out. So you can imagine he's feeling it a little and 
maybe even wanting it to fail. I mean, even though he doesn't, right? You, you could imagine, but here's what General Allen Brooks says. I am very uneasy about the whole operation, speaking about D-Day and the attacks at the beach of Norman, beaches of Normandy. It may well be the most ghastly disaster of the whole war. So that's the type of support uh, Dwight Eisenhower is getting. The man for the moment. We're going to use Dwight Eisenhower as a picture of being presidential in this. And so what I want us to do is exercise our souls in this. Because you're not leading, you're not the supreme commander of the Allied troops in 1944. But you are responsible for something right now. And it is hard to be the guy in charge in this moment. No one really wants to be this guy. Everyone does in history. You really don't want to be this guy in his boots right now. The man for the moment. The objective, they need to break through what's called the Atlantic Wall. And since Hitler had taken Belgium, Holland, and France, they haven't been able to touch. They've had some little raids along the, the coastlines. But let me explain to you the Atlantic Wall. So in 1944 at this time, that's Hitler's occupied territory. He owns Europe, basically. And actually, he had more of this. You see, the boot of Italy was his. And so you see the allies that have taken North Africa. That was his. And now they've crept up through Italy. And then Russia has actually made some advances back against them. But basically, this is Hitler's territory. So the Atlantic Wall, I'm going to draw a line, is basically up along from Norway down through uh, southern France. They need to somehow penetrate this. If they're going to somehow break Hitler, they have to make it across this Atlantic Wall. Stalin, from the very beginning, 1941, is, is saying, you guys have to hit them in, 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 in France. And Churchill's like, you don't understand, Stalin, how an amphibious battle works. That's water to land. You don't understand. You don't just say, oh, let's attack. You can't get your tanks just across water. You can't get troops just to sort of hop across this. You have to bring them across. And you have to deal with U-boats. You have all sorts of challenges. The, the unsteady water in this and the, and the weather in that English Channel is so unpredictable. And so Churchill, who's a Navy guy, is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Stalin's upset with Churchill the whole time. And so it's going to take years to develop this attack. It's a huge operation. The plan, distract and attack. So this actually has, there's a distraction operation. It's going to be called Operation Bodyguard. I don't know how many of you have studied it, but it is extremely intriguing. Uh, and basically what it's going to be is a fake operation to get Hitler to think that the Allies are doing one thing so that they can hit him somewhere else. It's actually very intriguing. Operation Bodyguard. So the commander of this is... General George Patton, he's actually going to be in charge of a fake operation. I, I don't know if I've ever heard of this before. He's over a fake operation, so they're going to pick what they know Hitler would esteem as their, most, their strongest general. And they're going to put their strongest general, what they think Hitler would think is their strongest general, over this. And so they're going to make it very clear that, that Patton's over this. They're going to put Patton in very specific places, make it very clear that he's over this. And the objective is to fool the enemy. So Winston Churchill says, of course, we had not only to plan for what we were really going to do, the enemy were bound to know that a great invasion was being prepared. We had to conceal the place in time of attack and make him think we were landing somewhere else and at a different moment. This alone involved an immense amount of thought and action. So they're key weapons. They have a decoy general. They have what we're going to call mutton Jeff. I didn't come up with the term, but uh, there's, when I was originally studying, it was like really fascinating because they're going to discover certain spies, uh, German spies in England. And then it says in various readings that I had that they turned them and began to use them for their own purposes. And I was thinking, how did they do that? And then as I studied it more, I realized how they did that. They didn't expose to these spies that they knew they were spies. So the way that they used them is they deliberately gave these spies information. Oops. And as a result, Mutt and Jeff, as they were known, were the informants to Hitler. And they were getting some juicy pieces of information that the Allies were going to hit northern Norway. <laughs> oh, and they're going to hit Pas de Calais, guaranteed. When they come across the channel, that's the shortest route, they're going to hit Pas de Calais, not Normandy. That wasn't even on the table. So Mutt and Jeff are actually going to be part of their strategy. It's actually really funny to study. 
the British secret or the British intelligence services is, is quite uh, amazing in World War II. They have dummy planes. I, I've never actually seen, I didn't study the dummy planes, but that's really intriguing to me. The dummy tanks, I have a picture for you of a dummy tank because they know that the Luftwaffe is surveying this and they're, they're taking pictures. Even the spies are taking pictures. And so they're amassing this massive, uh, uh, massive military movement in a very specific spot called Dover so they could cross in the shortest path over to Pas-de-Calais. And so, but it's all fake stuff. They literally have like filmmakers and artists that are drawing things. They have this huge canvas, the painted canvas showing all these landing craft that take tanks across. They have all of these, but it's a big canvas. And so when you take a picture from the air, it's like, wow, look at how many they have. It's obvious that they're coming across there. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so let me show you the dummy tank. It's a blow-up tank. <laughs> Isn't that one of the coolest things? I mean, I, I, I know I'm getting a little off course here, but that is intriguing. I just had to show it to you guys. Okay, so the attack, the D-Day was scheduled for June 5th, 1944. The day and the hour is a huge thing for something like this. At 6.30 a.m. So the stakes. If the Allies lose the element of surprise, so the amount of effort that they are giving to create surprise for this is so extreme. And the surprise is everything. Because actually Hitler on the other side, to be in a defensive position is just stronger than an offensive position, especially coming out of water. right? So if Hitler knows where they're coming from, uh, it's going to be a very, very long day. And a lot of loss and probably no nothing gained other than dead bodies. And so this is a very, very difficult thing. They have to have surprise. And they have waited, laid it a very in amazing web uh, out there, and, and the spider is, 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 is fallen for it. He's going after the fly up in Norway. He's actually going to send a whole division up to Norway like a week before. And so all of these things, are, they're working, and, and the Allies know it, but they need to be able to do it now, June 5th, 1944. So if the Allies lose the element of surprise, they will likely lose the battle. If they lose this battle, it could mean stalemate for years to come and likely the loss of countless millions of more lives. So there's a lot hanging in the balance right now. The mounting crisis, only three days in the month of June will match the needs of amphibious landing on the Normandy beaches, which is all a moon issue. It's a lunar issue of how the tides work and there needs to be enough light and the tide needs to be low enough. Well, I'll go through it. Uh, so June 5th, 6th, and 7th, a full moon is needed to clearly illuminate obstacles and landing places and a low tide is needed at dawn to expose the Germans' elaborate underwater defenses. They have all sorts of mines set up. So if the water's too high, they won't see it. If it's low enough, then they can avoid it. And so the amount of detail in this is, is really uh, amazing. And optimal weather conditions are required. See, that's the one thing. You can control a lot of things. You can say 5th, 6th, or 7th, but you have no control over weather. It's a really frustrating thing. And that's the way many of us are as leaders too, is that we can get everything down, Pat. Like you could have great doctrine, but you can't control how people are going to live out their life. And you get leadership issues that weren't in the package. I mean, you, okay, I, I have all the right stuff. I have all the right information as long as we have this guy in the presidency and I have a perfectly well-behaved congregation. And it just doesn't ever come out that way. There are tensions and challenges that emerge that are going to test us and prove us as leaders. And in this case, it's going to be weather. So, sorry, my, my picture of uh, Group Captain James Stagg is a little low on the, uh, the screen there. But the initial problem is the weather report of Group Captain James Stagg in the early morning hours of June 4th, 1944. You look this guy up and the one thing he's known for is his weather report on June 4th. That's like what he's known for in history. Poor guy. And yet it is a major thing. So I understand why he's known for that. So I'm going to give a quote to it, okay? Even though we don't know the quote, we just know the report. Foul weather is just a few hours away. So they are, they are going to attack. They're ready. But on the 4th, he is going to let them know that we have a storm coming in. And this is not a small one. In fact, this storm is so shockingly extreme. It's going to, as, as Churchill will say it, it's like a December storm in June. Uh, of all days, for that to happen, it's going to come in at the end of June 4th and be on June 5th, the very day that they are supposed to launch. Now, remember, 
who's the man for the moment now? This is not what you want. You have everything in place and the amount of years that have gone behind this and the amount of weight upon this one man is crushing and he is going to have to make a decision. Do we go forward or do we stop? Because let me give you some more complexities in this. The crisis builds. So you already think that that weather report's difficult, right? Well, listen to this. The American meteorologist, now remember, Dwight D. Eisenhower's American. The American meteorologists approach the weather predictions different than the British ones do. The British ones are experts with the English Channel, though. And the Americans are just looking at historical data. So the American meteorologists predict clear weather for the 5th. And now the British meteorologists predict terrible weather for the 5th. In fact, so bad that, you know, we could lose everything just on the way over. Oh, okay, who wants to be Dwight D. Eisenhower right now? (laughs) So, uh, sorry to quote history.com, but I'm going to. Uh, Observations from Newfoundland taken on May 29th reported changing conditions that might arrive by the proposed invasion date. Based on their knowledge of English Channel weather and observations, the British forecasters predicted the stormy weather would indeed arrive on June 5th. The American meteorologists, relying on a differing forecasting method based on historic weather maps, instead believed that a wedge of high pressure would deflect the advancing storm front and provide clear sunny skies over the English Channel. The worst thing Eisenhower could do would be to delay if it's unnecessary, because every day of delay means a day of exposure. And right now, they have Hitler right where they want him, and they have bad weather. And so, this decision is crushing. I do not want this decision. Now, some of you have had decisions as of late of, should we open our church? I mean, what a a funny decision. Compared to this, it seems like small potatoes. But to us, it's a massive thing. Because for many of us, we are literally having to go against, and for some of you I know, because I know you, You have half your church that is in disagreement. That's a hard thing to do. When you have your entire church in in agreement, it's almost like cheating. Like Bob, Bo, uh, you guys have a church in unity. And so that's a gift. But there's a lot of people in this room that don't have that luxury. So to me, this is exactly what Dwight Eisenhower is dealing with. If he goes with the British meteorologists, imagine how the American meteorologists feel (laughs) It's like, sorry guys, to turn on my own country's meteorologist, but I'm going British with this one. And yet the British are experts with the English Channel. This is where they live. And so Dwight Eisenhower has to make a decision. The decision man, look at him, there he is. Uh, I don't know if you feel his pain in that picture. So before I tell you what his decision is, I'm guessing some of you could sort of figure it out since I already told you that D-Day was on June 6th, but I shouldn't have given that away. King Solomon, uh, David to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage. I want you to hear this person. I don't want you just to see a scripture up on the screen. I want you to hear this. Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Dwight Eisenhower, we postpone until the 6th. He makes the decision, calm, cool, collected, even though probably inside he's dying. He's making a decision that could cost them everything. It could cost, literally, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of thousands of lives. That if he makes it wrong, it's a swivel And this is a weight none of us wants, and yet when you get to that moment, you have to trust that you're the man for the moment. I've had to come to this conclusion many times. I can't just keep waiting around for just the the bolt of lightning. I need to trust. God has given me what I need. I have as clear a perspective as I can get, and God, I'm leaning on you with everything, but right now, I'm gonna say we postpone till the sixth. All right? And immediately it changes everything. You have groups, you have literally ships that are already moving across the English Channel on their way, and they couldn't even get in touch with one of the groups, and they're like going out. They're like, no, 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 stop them. And this is a huge deal. This is a lot of mechanics, a lot of things in motion. The difficulty in saying no, especially when saying no impacts so much. There are two different answers we could be giving in every juncture, a no and a yes. And ironically, there's not one that's easier. 
when you have to give a no, like we're, we're postponing, we're not going today, the consequences of that can be so grave and you feel it. To make a decision as a Christian is a unique role that we play because who are we to be making a decision? Why, why would we be put in this position? I don't, I'm not God, and yet we are positioned to actually discern what God is doing, and it's our job to push the button. And wow, what a role we play. So I'm going to just read this just because you need to hear it again. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny. Whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires. Whose capacity is congenial to the crisis. Whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child, and the outcome of the storm. The weight of decision in war. Very simply put, most cannot bear it. What we were dealing with here, I, I spent a lot of time studying World War I and the psychological breakdown, I wasn't studying this, I just came across it a lot, the psychological breakdown of the leaders, where literally they have to be removed at a certain point in time, they cannot handle the pressures. There is one thing that we have that the men and women of this world do not, and that is we have grace. We have something that enables us to go through the hardest of circumstances, even with a song. I still remember Richard Wurmbrandt when he was brought in as prisoner number one in Romania. He is going to be their example. They are going to break him. They're going to torture him until he is willing to get up in front of those same pastors of Romania and tell them he was wrong and the communists are right. And as they give him all these threats, he's looking back with a placid calm, and he says... Uh, if it would help, I would like to, to say that uh, if I feel my pulse and if it is racing and if it is increasing, you can know that there is no God. I mean, who's, who's going to do that? A Christian. You see, there is something else that we have. I can't tell you what Dwight Eisenhower had. I just am putting us in the situation. This is a hard situation. Dwight Eisenhower is going to make a historically good decision However, there's many men that have made a historically bad decision in the same situation. There's other men that have crumbled underneath these weights. You are not one to crumble. You have been built for this moment and you have been supplied everything you need to rise up and to grow 10 feet taller in the midst of this tempest. The storms that test our leadership are the same storms that strengthen us for victory. This same storm that is going to create a crisis for Dwight Eisenhower, very simply put, I'm going to give you something, is the very reason they're going to win D-Day. Isn't that strange? Now, let me give you something from the Nazi, oh, look at my S from Meteorologist made it to the next line. Rough season gale force winds won't weaken until mid-June. So the Nazis actually have their own meteorologist on this, and they say this is such an intense storm, and it's going to last till mid-June. So you know what happens? All the uh, high-level officers go home to visit their wives and families. Hitler actually goes, tonight, to, goes to bed the night before D-Day and says, don't wake me up for anything until, I think it was noon. For anything. And he doesn't get woken up till noon. The same storm that is going to prove the man is the same storm that's going to actually enable them to win. Haman is going to build a gallows, which historically is understood to even be shaped likely like a cross. And that same gallows that the enemy is building to crucify Mordecai on, to hang Mordecai on, is actually going to be his undoing. This same storm that is going to try Esther that is going to try the people, the, the Jews and Mordecai, is actually going to be, in the end, a symbol of their own salvation. What an amazing statement. The same Red Sea that is going to prove the test for the children of God is going to be their salvation, and it's going to swallow up the enemy. The crisis, June 6, 1944, 4 a.m. Whew, are any of us up? Well, you got a lot of Men that are wide awake right now. 
I mean, they, I don't even know that you can sleep. I've never been in this situation, but I don't know what it would be like uh, to be sitting in a boat for my, I'm going to go through it tomorrow morning, for 10 days on lockdown and wait and then be delayed a day. I mean, this is, this is a challenge, right? We got ourselves a crisis, guys. There is, the meteorologists are going to say that there's an 18-hour window that they are believing is there. Now, that's the funny thing about meteorology is it's all guesswork. It's educated guesswork. And they believe that there's an 18-hour window that will be open on June 6th. We're not sure, sir, (laughs) but this is the best we know. Oh, God. Why can't we just have clear skies? Why do we have to have a storm brewing? Now we have an 18-hour window. The next window that they could move into would be about two weeks out where they think that everything would be aligned and they could do it. Ironically, in history, those days were terrible storms. So they couldn't have taken them. And so likely the only window of time that exists, even though they don't know the future, is right here. But Eisenhower does, he can't see all things. He doesn't know that Hitler's going to bed and not waking up. He doesn't know that all uh, the men, Rommel went off to spend uh, the evening with his wife. They're all gone. All the leaders are gone. They are not expecting this. And there's an 18-hour window. He had to say no. Now he needs to make the most difficult decision of his life. Do you take it? The difficulty in saying yes, (laughs) I mean, I, he's going to visit the, the paratroopers that are literally going to drop in behind enemy lines. I just want you to imagine, if you were going to have a job, uh, imagine being a paratrooper that's going to drop in, surprise the Germans behind enemy lines, and just hope that your guys can get across the channel to hopefully, you know, bang some people up so you can get out. You're stuck behind enemy lines, surrounded by Germans. I mean, who wants that job? So... Eisenhower is going to go and visit them. Oh, it was like an hour before they're going to go. And I, I could just, uh, just imagine his decision making to actually have to say, I'm sending you in to die. Whoa, this is a huge thing. The difficulty in saying yes. As a Christian leader, I know full well that I'm training men and women to give up their life for Jesus. I know the cost. I have spent time studying Christian history, not just American Christian history, but Christian history. And it's men and women who are ready to die for Jesus. They understand that to suffer is normal, that difficulty comes with the package. They weren't Americanized in the process. They understand what it means. The question is, do we right now? Because right now you have a separation, a sifting that is taking place. The reason we're gathering is to rally to remind each other that we're not alone in standing. It's hard to stand all by yourself when you feel like you're the only one because the enemy jumps all over it. It's like, look at you. What, what are you thinking you're doing? You're not accomplishing anything other than giving up your life, giving up your ministry, giving up everything. What is it? This is a waste. It's not a waste, but it sure would be nice to know that we're surrounded by others. The difficulty in saying yes, especially in saying yes, impacts so much. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this scripture before, but uh, let's read it again. (laughs) Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Dwight Eisenhower. Okay, we'll go. Famous quote. Okay, we'll go. (laughs) Decisiveness. What was needed in this situation was a man for the moment. So whatever your opinion of Dwight Eisenhower, I, I, I love how he handled D-Day. That's what I'm going to say. I love how he handled it. This is a hard moment. I would not want to be in that situation. He did it. He rose to the occasion. He made a decision. Of course, it was a good decision, which really helps. You know that he actually wrote something that could be published if it went bad, and he was going to take all the blame. And so yeah, I, I was going to stick it in, I, I didn't. Uh, but it's actually a statement of his to say, you don't blame the men, they did their job, they laid down their lives, it was heroic, it was noble, lay all the blame on me. I mean, what, a, what an amazing uh, statement. Being presidential. Right now, 
I don't know what your exact role is. We all have differing roles. We all have differing responsibilities. It could just be for your own soul that you need to rise up and be presidential. It could be for your family. It could be for your church. It could be for entire groups of churches where your decisions actually transcend. Some of you are in business and you have to make decisions that actually impact a lot of people and actually can turn, it could even lead to the loss of jobs when we make decisions as leaders. So to be the man for the moment, to be the woman for the moment, to be presidential, don't shrink back. How do you know that you weren't placed in this role? Role spelled wrong, sorry guys. Uh, It it bothers me probably more than it does you. (laughs) Cinnamon roll, yeah. Now all of you are a little hungry. How do you know that you weren't placed in this role for such a time as this? You see, instead of grumbling and complaining that you're in this role right now, it's like, God, what? This is unfair that I would be faced with these challenges. Have you ever said this? uh, I didn't sign up for this. That is a lie. You did sign up for this. It's sort of like getting married and saying, I didn't sign up for this. It's like, okay, let's review the wedding vows again. (laughs) You signed up for this. Unless you don't truly understand what Christianity is, unless you don't understand what it means to give up your life, pick up your cross and follow him. The fact that it comes with splinters, that it comes with tests, that it comes with jeers and false accusation, that it comes with the challenge, that it comes with a tempest that we don't in the human side of us want. You signed up for this. When you believed in Jesus and you transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son, you left this world system and you joined God's system. You joined his military operation. And his church, is what it's known as, is directly opposed to the systems of this earth. In this earth, as I've oftentimes said, everyone has trials. Everyone. You don't need to be a believer to have trials. You just get them, right? Everyone, everyone has trials, but a believer has bonus ones. We do, because we also have all hell coming against us. But a leader amongst those believers gets bonus bonus. But don't be surprised by these trials. Don't consider it strange, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. These are our strengthening. The very things that are coming against us actually are going to be leveraged against our enemy. The storm on the fifth is actually going to pave the way for the victory at D-Day. Exercising decisiveness, preparing for your Eisenhower moment. We may already be there, guys. You already may be at an Eisenhower moment. It's obviously not as grand and as large, and I don't know if the history books are going to cover it and write it down. But for you, it's an Eisenhower moment. It's hard, and you don't want to have to make these decisions. You wish it would just go away. And yet, you are the one anointed for this position just as Esther was. You were the one trained on the lion and the bear, and you had the ram's horn of oil poured over your head by the prophet Samuel, and you stroll into that valley at that exact moment, and you hear the boasts. You're the one that is supposed to rise up and grab those smooth stones and react. There is a proper way that we are supposed to respond to this, and that's what I want to cultivate and stir up in our time together. Decisiveness when it matters most. To be decisive when everything's easy, you know, it's like, well, sir, do you want to have uh, pickles on that uh, pastrami? Hmm. No. (laughs) Okay, that's hard for some people. And yet, that's not impressive. That's not when it matters most. Decisiveness when it matters most. Where are you turning when it matters most? Are you turning to your emotions? Are you consulting your feelings? Are you looking out at the culture and what they would think of you? Where are you going for that decisiveness? Because we have been given what we need to stand on and be firm in the midst of the winds and the rains so that we can stand strong and immovable. I know where I stand, here I stand. So Eric, are you gonna keep standing there? I mean, if you keep standing there, you do know what's gonna happen. I'm going to keep standing here because this is the word of God and it is unchanging. This is my bulwark. This is where I remain. 
And decisiveness for what matters most? You see, you can be decisive for all sorts of things in your life, but be indecisive in the things that matter most. Soul-level decisions, because we're not talking about war in the physical sense, even though it is a physical battle right now. This starts as a spiritual issue for all of us as leaders. If we are taken hostage by the enemy, if we're taken out because we're indecisive in our own souls with where we stand right now, there's a lot of mushy leaders right now. And they are waffling, and they don't know what to do with Black Lives Matter because, I mean, we know that if you stand up against that, it sounds like they don't matter. And yet that organization is anti every single thing that you stand for. And so as a result, what do you do when it is politically incorrect, socially incorrect to actually believe the word of God and to stand as a Christian? Are you going to get mealy-mouthed right now? At the very hour that you have been set to make the decision, the yes or the no? This is our hour. This is what we dream of as as little kids when we're growing up and what we're going to grow up to be. Technically, this is what you dreamed of. You just didn't know it. When you say you want to be an astronaut, when you want to be a military leader, when you want to be the president of the United States, what were you thinking? Technically, this is what makes a great president. Technically, this is what makes a great military leader. Technically, this is what makes a great pastor. That they rise in the moment and their church looks and they feel secure because they're seeing Psalm 2 before them. They see in and through your leadership the one enthroned in heaven laughing. That's what the church needs to see right now. They need to see their leaders rise up and be confident in their God. So soul-level decisions. He said, okay, let's go. Okay, I believe. No more waffling. Where are you at? Are you with the culture? Are you with Jesus? Are you with the word of God on the matter or are you with political correctness? Political correctness has a strong power right now and it's strong in the church and it's probably strong in many of your churches. Where do you stand? Hey, Eric, you don't understand. I could lose my job if I actually stand like you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly what it means to be a leader right there. You're dealing with life and death as well. Yeah, you could lose your life too. You, you use that argument with me all day long and I could start whipping out Fox's Book of Martyrs for you. This is normal Christianity. The fact that we have not engaged with normal Christianity doesn't mean this isn't the way it's always been. This is the Christianity we've been praying for. We want revival in the church. We're gonna get it. The enemy's overplaying his hand and he's pressing. He's pressing too far and what's happening to all of us? Hey, hey, uh-huh. And we're, we're like, yeah, what are we doing? What are we doing? Hey, let's, let's, let's respond, let's live. Do we believe this or not? And maybe there's gonna be some that fall to the side, but there's gonna be others that are rallied to the cross afresh. I believe this. I believe this. Okay, I believe. Okay, Jesus. I'm yours. I'm not my own anymore. I've been living and pandering after that applause. I want people to like me. You cannot be a good leader and just hope that people like you. That's not gonna lead you anywhere. You're doing this for Jesus. You belong to him. Make the decision of where you stand. Okay, that is truth. You go to the word of God, you define what is true right now because we got a lot of lies floating around out there. There's a soupy mess and we as Christians have to cut that all away and we know what is true. I remember when we were first dealing with COVID and I'm thinking, I do not trust anyone. You know, before that, you know, you don't really trust the media, right? But you at least sort of have a sense of what is true out there and what's actually happening. I don't, if I were to ask you, so tell me about (laughs) COVID-19. I think we, it is, it's a, it's a fog bank and I have a very difficult time if you said, so tell me what's going to happen in early November. Tell me what's going to happen next year. I have no idea. Well, well, wait a minute, scratch that. I do have an idea. You see this scripture? I do know that he knows. And so therefore, I'm going to put my trust in the one who actually does know. 
And I'm going to rest in the fact that he can lead us as a church and he knows what's ahead. And so therefore, I'm going to believe him. I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to let him take me through this as opposed to try and figure my way or fret my way through this. You can rest. You can be fearless right now. If you rest in God's hand, you're in the perfect place. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.